So turn with me again in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel and chapter 15. And we'll be looking at uh, this section here, the, the death and the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ and then his resurrection too at the end. Now we're going to consider what's happened to the Lord Jesus after he died. But the story starts a little while before then. See, as Jesus was going from town to town, city to city, preaching the kingdom of God, teaching about eternal life, forgiving sins, healing diseases, and doing all manner of good to all sorts of people, there were some people who were seeking to catch him and murder him. The Sanhedrin, have you heard that word before? The Sanhedrin was a council of the 70 top Jews in all the country. They were scribes, Pharisees, elders, chief priests and the like. And they were out to catch Jesus and kill him. Because they were jealous of his ministry and his success and all this sort of thing. And they were offended at his preaching as well. Do you think Jesus knew that while he was going town to town, preaching and teaching in the towns and cities of Galilee and around Jerusalem, do you think he knew that there were people seeking to kill him, to catch him? Well, yes, of course he knew. He knew uh, even a few days before, he knew that they were going to catch him, take him and crucify him. So what did he do? Did he stop preaching? No. Did he run away? No, that's what I'd be tempted to do, but it's not what the Lord Jesus do, did. What did he do? He put his hands together and he prayed. He prayed about it. Why did he pray? Why didn't he run? Why didn't he go back to being a carpenter? Well, you see, Jesus knew that there was more at stake than the life of one man. Jesus knew that he was going to die, not for himself, but in the place of sinners. Sinners who would turn from sin and to him, believing in him for the forgiveness of their sins. He knew what was at stake, and so he prayed about it. He prayed to our Father, and he said, if it is possible, if there is any other way to save them, but not my will, your will be done. And Jesus was determined to go through with it. Jesus was determined to be caught, killed, crucified, and in so doing, bear the sins of all of his people. While Jesus was wringing his hands in prayer to our Father about this very thing, one of his closest friends appeared with a mob of people armed to the teeth. Judas betrayed Jesus. And those hands which had fed thousands and blessed and healed thousands, they tied them together and they took him away. And in the middle of a dark night, they took Jesus to a fake pretend trial where fake witnesses told lies to a fake judge who had already decided the outcome, that he deserves death. And so they blindfolded him so that he couldn't see what was happening, and they pounded him. 
they spat on him and beat him. And they kept beating him down until the sun came up. And in the morning, they tied him up again and they took him to Pilate to have Pilate kill him because they needed Roman authority to kill someone. They said, Pilate, we want you to crucify this man. Pilate is torn up inside. He doesn't know what to do because he knows that Jesus' hands are clean of any crime. He is innocent. And yet the powerful Sanhedrin are resolute. You must execute him. You have to kill him. Why, he said. What, what, is, what evil has he done? There is no violence in him. Crucify him, they said. And so Pilate gives in to their demands. And as we read in Mark's gospel, in front of the entire garrison of soldiers, they strip Jesus down. They tie his hands to a pillar and they whipped him and they whipped him and they whipped him. Then they made him stagger naked through the city, carrying in his hands his own cross. And when they got him to the specified place, they took his hands and they nailed them down to that piece of wood and they hung him up to die. He hung there for hours and hours, dying on the cross. And you know, in a sense, this is where Jesus' sufferings began, in a sense. Where we have the words of the prophet fulfilled in Isaiah, where it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. My sin and your sin, the sin of the whole world, it must be punished if God is to forgive sin. And so it is that Jesus suffered not just in body and in mind, but in his spirit on the cross. He knew that this was the price to save sinners like you and me. Jesus knew that this was the price. And so as hard as it was, as impossible and unbearable as it was, he went willingly, he went cheerfully, he ran to that cross and he leaped upon it and he embraced it as the only way to bear the punishment for sinners like you and me. In this is love, that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us and bore the sins that we have done. As we just sang, the Father turned his face away and Jesus was abandoned by everyone. He was alone with no help and no relief when the justice and the wrath of God poured down on him from heaven. It collapsed on him who knew no sin but had become sin for us. Now, you know this as well as I do, because everyone has sin in their life. Everyone has things that trouble their conscience, that keep them up at night, things that offend God and offend our family and our friends and our neighbours, even ourselves. We have sin in our life. And the Bible says that there is where it belongs, on the cross. 
That's where it must be. When was the last time that you put it there? When was the last time that you consciously, actively, actually prayed and said, Lord God, I bring to you my sin. And we put it on the cross and say, Jesus dies instead of me. He bears my sin that I cannot bear myself. The hell which you and I have earned by our sins have been laid on him. He died for me. He died for me and he died for any and all who will repent and believe in him. You know, at that moment when Jesus breathed his last and gave up his spirit, in spirit he was with his Father in glory. But in body, the Lord Jesus was still pinned to that piece of wood. His lifeless body hung on the cross as the sun began to set. The sun was setting. Now, what, what day is afterwards? What's the day that is about to dawn? Do you know? Saturday. Now, that's a problem. Do you know why that might be a problem? Because Saturday is a holy day for the Jews. It's their Sabbath. And this one in particular, this is the Passover Sabbath. And it's not lawful in the Jewish law for Jesus to be hanging on a cross. You can't have a body hanging on the Sabbath day, especially Passover. And so that's why our Gospels say it is because it was the Sabbath, or since it was the Sabbath, the priests return to Pilate and say, Pilate, you know that man that we just had you crucify? We would like you to uncrucify him now. See, in observance of the law that they had just flagrantly broken and disregarded, they wanted Jesus' body taken off the cross and thrown into a dump, out of sight and out of mind. This is where we meet Joseph of Arimathea. He's a man we've not met before. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, the same council that sentenced Jesus to death. But Joseph wasn't consenting with them about that because he was a good man, a just man. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was a secret follower of the Lord Jesus secretly because he was frightened of his friends and his colleagues. Having just witnessed the resurrection, Joseph of Arimathea plucks up all the courage he can muster and on the heels of his colleagues, he goes into Pilate. You can imagine them coming out, having just asked Pilate to take the body off the cross, having sort of just finished off the Lord Jesus as they wished. As they're leaving, they see Joseph of Arimathea coming in behind them and saying, I want the body of the Lord Jesus so that I can give him a proper burial. His request is granted and Joseph now has just three hours, three hours before sundown, in which to bury the body he has to finish before the Sabbath. And so Joseph goes to the cross and with some help, with some help, he pulls the body from the cross, he lays it on the floor and he pulls the nails out of Jesus' cold hands and he lays a shroud of pure white linen over his body and watches the blood seep through the fabric. Lifting the body, he carries the body to his own tomb that nobody has ever used before. 
And there he washes the body, he cleans the blood from Jesus' back, and he wipes the spit off of his face. He pulls the thorns out of his hair, and he takes the, the blood that's all over him, he washes it all away, and the sweat on his head, he wipes it away, and then he begins to anoint the body of our Saviour with 34 kilograms of spices, aloes, and myrrh. And he's pushing these aloes and these spices into his wounds, into the holes of his hands and his feet. And he's packing the, the, the gaping hole in his side where the spear went in. And he's anointing the wounds on his head made by the thorns. And over Jesus' expressionless face, he is anointing with herbs and spices and aloes. And then he wraps the body in one more shroud of pure white linen as he has wrapped each limb and all the spices into it. And he puts it onto the shelf in his tomb. And he leaves the tomb, rolls a massive stone across the door, and he goes home. And we never hear of him in the scriptures ever again. It is a remarkable thing that so little is said about so great a man who paid so high a price to do this for the Lord Jesus. Now, what I'd like to do for you to, this morning is to impress very quickly upon you how much of a price Joseph of Arimathea paid to bury the Saviour, our Lord Jesus. And then we're going to ask the question, why did he pay that price? And then we'll consider whether or not it was actually worth it. So first of all, let's look at how much did this cost? And I'll try and do this as quickly as possible for you. First of all, we have a financial cost. You know, when, when, when Joseph goes into Pilate, he knows he's going to have to pay a bribe for this. It's very well documented. It's extremely likely that Pilate will have requested a hefty bribe from Joseph of Arimathea for the corpse of this seditious rebel that he had just crucified. And then after that, he has to go and buy two shrouds of fine linen, at least two, fine white linen, and enough to wrap the whole body. And now we're not talking about the game that we play in young people's where you give them a toilet roll and they see if they can wrap someone up in it. No, this is every limb and the whole body, head to toe, completely wrapped. There's a lot of linen, very expensive. Then he has to buy 34 kilograms of spices. You know, that's the weight of an average 10-year-old. He would have had to have a wheelbarrow or something to carry so much of these spices that he has bought. And then he gives Jesus his own tomb, a tomb that nobody had laid in before, one that he had made for himself or bought for his family. You know, Joseph doesn't expect any of this back. How much would you pay to bury a member of your own family? How much would you pay to bury a stranger? Would you pay anything at all to conduct the funeral of a criminal that everyone that you know despises? No expense was spared for this executed criminal. Joseph gave to him the graves of his family. He threw away, this is what I want you to get, Joseph threw away all of his money 
so that he could honour the Lord Jesus, so that he could have him. And then there's a religious cost. You see, this Friday, did you catch how Mark mentioned about it, how, it, how Mark described this day? He said, the preparation day, the day before the Sabbath, the day that you give over to preparing your heart, consecrating yourself, cleansing yourself, making sure that you are sanctified and holy and ready and clean to observe the Passover. But Joseph, the moment that he touched Jesus' hand to pull the nail from it, he's unclean. He is now barred, unfit to observe the fullest extents of the Sabbath, excluded from the highest privileges. And you know, it's not just that Sabbath that's now spoiled, but every Sabbath. Anything at all to do with the Lord Jesus is a good enough reason to have you kicked out of the synagogue to be excommunicated. And here's Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, now barred from his synagogue. All the priests knew who he was, and you can be sure he had a hard time going back there after this. Would you follow Jesus, even if it cost you church? Joseph didn't just throw away his money to have Jesus. Joseph, but in front of everyone, threw away all of the trimmings of his religious life, all of the appearance of piety, all of the religiosity, all of the outward looks of righteousness. He threw it all away that he could have the real thing, the Lord Jesus. He threw away the appearances that he held with his Sanhedrin, his colleagues, and the upstanding people in his society. He threw away the reputation he had with the Romans and with all of his friends and his family and the synagogues and in all of Jerusalem. He threw it all away so that he could have the real thing. Lastly, he paid a professional price. You know, Mark says that he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. And now, by burying the Lord Jesus in such a public way like this, he goes to the 69 other, uh, other elders in the Sanhedrin and he says, I throw my lot in with this dead heretic that you just had crucified. He says, I'd rather be with the Lord Jesus crucified than with you because he's the real thing. He throws his lot against the 69 most powerful men in the whole country. Standing against them, against his friends, against his colleagues, so that he could have Jesus. And with the Romans too. You can be sure the Romans didn't show him any favour after this. Only suspicion that he would side with the seditious rebel. Could you follow the Lord Jesus if it cost you your career? Joseph threw away his whole life. His career, his social standing, his, uh, his reputation, the outward appearance of all of his piety and righteousness and his good standing before God in the society threw it all away so that he could have Jesus. Tell me, what does he have left? Because in short, his life is over. His lucrative job is gone. Members of his family will have dis disowned him. His own home could have been taken from him. Even his own grave is gone, thrown away for the Lord Jesus. There is one natural question to all of that. 
why on earth, why would Joseph of Arimathea throw his life away for a corpse? Well, the Gospels tell us in wonderful words that Joseph of Arimathea was waiting for the kingdom of God. And you see, he believed that Jesus was the king of that kingdom. You know, there were days in Joseph's career where the Sanhedrin said, Jesus is in town. Let's go and listen to him preach and teach and see if we can catch him out. See if we can get any really smart questions that will catch him out. And hopefully we can catch him with some sort of uh, libel, some sort of slander. Maybe we could discredit him, ruin his career, even his life. And so Joseph says, okay, let's go. And following at a distance, he listens to Jesus preaching. He watches Jesus lay hands on people and heal them. He hears him proclaim the gospel. He watches him forgive sins. He observes him as he stumps all of his colleagues whose life is the law of God. And he stumps them. He bests them every time. He watched him prove his gospel is true with the many miracles. He watched him heal disease, forgive sin, touch lepers, forgive and heal on the Sabbath. He watched him give his money away to the poor when he was poor himself. I wonder what it was like for Joseph to watch this, to start to put two and two together, to start to work these things out. I wonder what it was like for Joseph to watch Jesus be led away like a lamb to the slaughter. You see, Joseph observed Jesus during his ministry and listened to his preaching and what his colleagues were saying about him too. And he heard what the population said about him and he thought about Jesus' sermons. And, you know, he started to put two and two together to what he read with what he saw and what he heard. You see, Jesus saw a man of sorrows and he read in his Bible, acquainted with grief. He saw a man with stripes all over him, whipped and whipped and whipped until he had all these stripes on him. And he read, by his stripes we are healed. And then he hears from Pilate's mouth, he has done no violence. And he reads, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He sees on the cross Jesus, one smitten by God and afflicted. And he reads, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He sees one numbered with the transgressors and with the rich at his death. You see, Joseph came to realise from what he saw, from what he heard and what he read, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, come to take away the sins of the world. And so he forsook everything and threw it all away that he might have him. He found in Jesus the pearl of greatest price that it was worth selling all of his life for. You are in the same position as Joseph of Arimathea this morning. You have heard the gospel preached to you by different people. You've seen the power of the Lord Jesus in people's lives. 
And you've read in the Bible, you've read verses the people have sent to you. You've read and read and read about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world. What do you think about that? How do you conclude? When you try and put two and two together, will you follow him? Jesus must be followed. The Bible insists upon it and not at a distance. You know, Jesus really is who the Bible says he is. The Son of God come to take away your sin. And God insists this. He insists this of you. That you give up all the things in your life so that you can have eternal life. To make like Joseph of Arimathea and count all these things that are gain as loss that you might know Jesus. To count everything rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. The Bible and God, they insist that you give up the world so that you can have him who made the world. Give up your sin and repent of it so that you can have him who bore sin away on your behalf. This is what the Bible insists that you do as you put what you hear, what you see, and what you read together. Don't allow your life to be about the nine-to-five grind. Don't allow your life to be Monday to Friday, Monday to Friday. How was your weekend? When's your next holiday? How much money can I make? When will I pay off my mortgage? How high up the career ladder can I go? How many children can I have? How high up a religious ladder can I climb? What office can I hold in the church? Don't make your life about these things that are here today and gone tomorrow. Make your life about the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider him worth so much more, the value of a thousand worlds in him. Make him your objective. Be willing to value him more than anything else. Now here's an interesting question for you. Did Joseph of Arimathea expect the resurrection of the Lord Jesus? I don't know. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But either way, this is one thing we do know, that Joseph of Arimathea traded his life so that he could have a corpse. That's what he did. He said, Joseph says, that being the most religious man in Israel, with all of the money that comes with that, with all of the esteem, with all of the respect, the career, the social standing, he says, with all of that, it avails nothing at all with God. Nothing at all. Joseph says that his only hope to be right with God and to be forgiven of his sin is a crucified saviour. And Jesus is your only hope. He is my only hope. We must, we have to stake everything on a crucified Jesus. Not the labours of my hands can fulfil thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou, Jesus, must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. 
And this is what Joseph of Arimathea did and said. Nothing in my life can avail anything at all with God. I cling only and ever to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and stake everything in a crucified saviour. So that's why he paid such a heavy price. But is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth following Jesus to pay such a heavy cost for him? Is it worth hoping in a dead man to be forgiven of sin and made right with God? Well, let's ask Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph says, I would pay it all a thousand times to have Christ. Joseph says, I count it all rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. Joseph says that when I bury Jesus in that tomb, I throw in my wealth, I throw in my reputation, my career, my family, my home. I throw it all in behind him and I roll that stone over the door. I consider myself dead with Christ. Have you buried your life? Have you died to yourself in order to have him? Counting him worth more than all the things in your life. In him I live. Upon him I cast my care. He saves from death, destruction and despair. Is Joseph right? Joseph says it's worth hoping in the Lord Jesus, the crucified saviour. But is he right? Because you and I know that it's not worth following Jesus if he is still dead. If Jesus is still in the ground just outside Jerusalem, then we of all men are most to be pitied, the Bible says. And this is why we say that Joseph did not just bury Christ. It's more like the planting of a seed. You see, Joseph invested everything in Jesus. He deposited his whole life in him, and he was not disappointed by the returns. You see, after, after Joseph rolled that stone across the tomb and went home, I dare say he didn't sleep a wink. But up all night, if he had a phone, it would have been ringing off the hook. What have you done? What have you done? There's no way I'm talking to you again. You can count yourself off the council. You can count yourself off the members' role of this synagogue. You can't shop in my shop anymore. You can't come to my synagogue anymore. And then, a little more than a day later, after a flurry of all that opposition, Joseph heard that the stone that he had rolled across his tomb had been rolled away. And he heard that the smell of his aloes came out of the tomb. And he heard from Jesus' disciples that his Lord, that he had buried, walked out of that tomb and was alive again. To show the world that God had accepted Jesus' sacrifice for sinners. He was raised from the dead to new life, to endless life, to incorruptible life, as proof that it is worth following him. It is worth sinners turning to him. It is worth forsaking all and following him. It's worth giving up the love of money 
the love of appearances. It's worth giving up the pursuit of an unfulfilling life for endless jobs. It's worth giving up those things so that we can have in the Lord Jesus Christ eternal life, sins forgiven, wealth with God, a home in heaven. You know, I like to think that Joseph witnessed the ascension of the Lord Jesus and perhaps even Pentecost. I don't know. But after paying such a price, he's not got much less to lose. So why not bother with all of the new Christians? Maybe he did observe those things. But what we do know is that now, at this very moment, Joseph of Arimathea, he sees the kingdom that he waited for. And his ears right now are full of the praises of heaven. And he wears on his head a crown of glory, a crown that belongs to that kingdom because he cleans the crown of thorns from the Lord Jesus. He sees with his own eyes the saviour, the face that he once anointed, the face that he once cleaned. The face that he once embalmed and put in a tomb, he sees it and it is no longer bloodied. It is shining with glory. Jesus' face is smiling back at Joseph now and it says it was all worth it. It's worth putting our life on the altar of sacrifice and saying, let my life be a sacrifice to you, Lord Jesus. You know, lots has been taken away from us in the past few weeks, hasn't it? Many of us have lost money, maybe entire businesses. Some of us may have our homes now under threat because of that. And some of us may have lost family or friends to these conditions. Some of us, many of us now, have lost churches. But these things, from Joseph's testimony, are fickle and passing away. Our church buildings and the way we do our services and all of these things, they'll all pass away one day. Joseph tells us to value above all of these things, life and all of its cares and worries, to value over, over everything, Jesus Christ, the risen King of heaven, more than everything in all the world. Allow me to leave you with this. Know Christ. Know him. Because he is the treasure. He is the treasure. Not some notion about him, but he himself is the treasure worth giving up our lives for. He died for sinners and he rose for sinners like you and me to forsake all and cling to him, the risen saviour. You know, Christians alone have this wonderful privilege to say that the good news that we have is this, that we have something worth forsaking everything to have. That's a distinctly Christian privilege, and it's one that you can share in. There is someone worth forsaking everything to have. Find Jesus Christ. Love him and value him above everything in the whole world. And you cannot be disappointed with the returns. You will know eternal life and forgiveness in his name. 
Now I'm going to read a few verses from the book of Philippians and then I will um, pray and then we'll have our last song together, our last hymn. So Philippians and from chapter three, these are the words of Paul on this very topic. He says, I might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks that they may have confidence in the flesh, I am also. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, I am a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we can only thank and bless and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that righteousness which he has purchased for us by his death on the cross. And Lord, we thank you for the example of Joseph, of Arimathea, and of Paul, who counted all things lost, that they might have him and no righteousness through faith in him. Father, please open our eyes to see the all-surpassing worth of Christ our Saviour, that we would learn to value him over everything, literally everything else in our lives that you have blessed us with. We thank you for all of them and pray that none of them should find a home as idols on the thrones of our hearts, but rather we should concern them all, consider them all as blessings, as gifts from the giver. Please give us over to a, a, a love of the Lord Jesus Christ and valuing him more than anything else. Take our sins, we pray, nail them to his cross. Let us never see them again, having found faith in the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.